Hello, and welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Phil Hine. Phil is an independent researcher and occult practitioner of over 40 years. Initiated into both Western and Indian spiritual traditions, he has practiced a hybridized form of Tantra for over 25 years. His writing has appeared in a wide number of journals and anthologies, including Abraxas, Chaos International, and Pagan News. He has three books in print, Condensed Chaos, Prime Chaos, and the Pseudonomicon, and has just released three chapbooks in a series exploring the history of the chakras. He lives in London with his partner Maria. His current writings can be found at http colon slash slash enfolding.org. So I'm here with Phil Hine in his lovely flat in the Forest Hill neighborhood of London. I've had an opportunity to sit down with Phil, um, and he's been generous enough with his time uh, to share uh, some uh, an hour or so with me so we can talk about his work. And Phil is known uh, a lot for his work on chaos magic, but he has been, and the occult, but he's been doing uh, quite a bit of work these days on the chakras. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how that history of um, interest in Tantra and occultism relates to the chakras. So, but before we get into all that, Phil, tell me a little about yourself and, and what was sort of the evolution of your life that led you to the study of occultism and Tantra? And Well, I became interested in the occult I guess in my late teens which would be the late 70s now mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't you know a lot of people say oh I was into the occult when I was a kid and all that but I wasn't oh really um, I think what happened for me is I, I became really interested in young when mm -hmm. I was in my late teens and um, I was literally browsing through a local library looking for probably looking at a book on witchcraft, probably looking for book, uh, pictures of nude witches. Mm. You know, <laughs> and I came as across, you do. <laughs> as you do. And I came across um, a picture by an occult artist called Austin Austin Spare. And I thought, wow, that's really Jungian. Mm. So, What made it Jungian? Um, it, it seemed to me it was a kind of like um, a representation of, of various archetypes. And... Mm -hmm. um, of course, whether it was or not is another is a moot point, but that's how I interpreted it. And from then, I started to get interested in the occult, whereas previously I thought it was all bullshit. You know? mm -hmm. uh, and so I read everything in my local library, which was mostly uh, theosophical material. Right. I actually joined the Theosophical Society, thinking, "Wow, if you know, if it's like this in the 1870s, what are they going to be talking about now?" And what I largely found was that they were still talking about stuff in the 1870s. Mm -hmm. um, and then I moved away to Huddersfield in Yorkshire to do a degree in psychology. And while I was doing that degree, I actually met some uh, people who were involved in the occult. And through them, I made various contacts. And I ended up working with a, a witch coven. Mm. So my first phase of, of occult involvement was through witchcraft. And I think what witchcraft uh, opened up in me is, is a deep sense of devotion to goddesses. Mm. And I think later on when I started to encounter Tantra, that's kind of what put the hook in me was the beautiful uh, goddess imagery and the devotional poetry. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because in in your in your talks that you the talk that I attended the other day, you mention um, the relationship between goddesses and the chakras, and and it'll be interesting to talk about in a little bit how that gets sort of 
taken out because, of course, many people don't associate the chakras with goddesses in the Western understanding. So I want to go back a little bit to what you said about, you know, when you before you started studying occultism, you thought it was all BS. Now, you know, many people listening probably don't have much knowledge of the occult or maybe they do think it's BS or just even hearing the word witchcraft is a little bit scary for some people. So can you kind of, you know, familiarize people with what, or or maybe me even addressing sort of some common misunderstandings of what it is? Well, that's, that's kind of difficult because when I got involved in the occult in the late 1970s, it was very secretive. People Mm -hmm. didn't know much about it. It actually took me quite a long time to, to meet and talk to other occultists because there wasn't, you know, the internet like there is nowadays. There isn't a wide range of shops and venues and meetings that people can go to it was all kind of very hush hush and uh, i actually think nowadays it's a lot easier to be an occultist you mm. know, I, I put it on my cv <laughs> been an issue for me yeah you know? um and yeah which witchcraft is is has morphed out of all proportion to the witchcraft that i was involved in which was very much kind of like British Alexandrian witchcraft to what it is now. I mean, it's it's become hugely popular, and it's just seen as another religious option. Mm-hmm. So I th- I think that you know the changes that have happened certainly since I've been involved in the occult have been enormous. Yeah, and it's it's much easier now. It's much um, people don't go oh, you're an occultist. You know you're gonna you know, summon a, de- a demon up or something in my study. Yeah. You know, people are interested. Yeah, people are interested. They're more open-minded. But but when we're talking about witchcraft, we're not talking about you don't get in you know black robe and and a and a and a pointy top hat. So what are what are kind of the tenets of of witchcraft? Like what's the what's the worldview? Um, it's a very um, I would say very ecologically based worldview. Okay. Um, you know, reverence for the earth. I guess it's you would say it's it's making making a connection with the divine within. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's earth based. It's a spirituality which is places human beings um, within the center of its worldview. Mm. Right. So it's it's in a sense it's tantric. Um, I think there are similarities. How how far I would go down the route of saying, oh well, you know, there are different kind of like influences. Um, is I think is a much more difficult question, but there certainly are resonances there. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 happy you said that about the ecological perspective because that to me has always seemed like the way in for people to who maybe have a have heard the word witchcraft and have associated it with all sorts of you know uh, devilish things perhaps as a result of their Judeo Christian um, upbringing. And so you know really it is uh, from what I've under. Ever, Anytime I've encountered it, what I've understood is is this kind of encouraging of a relationship with the earth, which I think people can really um, latch on to. It makes it a much more kind of accessible option. Well, you know, equally we can say the same about Tantra. I mean, Tantra right, has, has exactly. This, you know, up until very recently, and I think to some extent it still does. Tantra has this horrible reputation. Yeah. It's, it's all about kind of like doing nasty things in cremation grounds. Yeah. And, you know, summoning up evil spirits. And, yeah. Or impure sexual acts. Impure yeah. sexual acts, however you may want to phrase that, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can certainly talk about. Yeah, and we, and we will. So so then um, how does, uh, maybe just since we're talking about witchcraft, how does that relate to the chaos magic that you spent a lot of your time working on? Okay, well, um, chaos magic emerged, I would say, around the mid-80s. Okay. Um, 
I think the, the best way to think about chaos magic is, in a sense, it's, it was a kind of reaction to the occultism of the of the 60s and 70s, which was very prescriptive. It was very orthopractic. You know, you, you were told to do rituals and you did them. You didn't question them. Mm. Um, I, I guess a good example for me is that at, at the time that I was still involved with this witchcraft group and doing other things as well, um, I was studying to be a drama therapist. Mm. So I was I was having really great time doing lots of drama therapy, lots of group work. And then I'd come back to this occult group that I was with and say, hey, this stuff is great. We should do some of this. You know, it's really, really great. And they'd kind of like look at me and go, that's not part of our tradition. <laughs> and I was like, what? So if it isn't in a book on witchcraft, we can't try this stuff out? Yeah. And Chaos Magic, when I encountered it... Um, it was a kind of like permissive space to do that, to draw in mm. things that, that yeah. weren't like obviously occult, you know, like drama therapy, like theatre. I was doing a lot of improv work and I saw a direct relationship, obviously through ritual, which was what I was interested in. And, and I wanted to experiment with this stuff. And another big thing about chaos magic, which some people I think found quite shocking, was the idea of, hey, let's play around with fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea in, in the in the late 70s that you could have a, a meaningful, if you like, magical relationship with, with something out of a piece of fiction rather than that, something out of proper mythology was a bit heretical. Yeah. And people started playing around with these, these ideas. And I saw chaos magic as a, as, yeah, as a permissive space to bring things in from other areas that weren't kind of like obviously occult and, and integrate them into my practice. Mm. Right, so there's like a playfulness that's involved. There's a, there's in a the... definite playfulness. Yeah, and um, I I got really into into the, uh, this kind of like crazy chaos goddess called Eris, mm-hmm. who's a very playful goddess. You know, and we started doing all kinds of uh, we did a lot of street theatre with Eris in the in the eighties in some spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, we started declaring people to be Erisian papesses and mm-hmm. you know giving them a ring and stuff. Mm. And it was very playful, yeah. Yeah. So, what? How does how does the word chaos sort of play in here? Because I guess, as you're saying, playful is chaos really referencing the fact that it's not sort of orthodox. It kind of allows. It's sort of the boundaries are permeable. Like, what is what? What exactly does the word chaos play into this kind of idea? Well, I think the word chaos signifies different thing for different people. Right. Um, For me, it was very much about letting in a space for being humorous, for not taking your, you know, your magical work very seriously, for bringing in playful elements. Uh, some people got really into the, the whole chaos theory stuff and started getting very scientific and, you know, we, or we want to bring in from things from chaos theory and, and what have you. Mm. And I was never that interested in science. Mm. You know, I kind of interested in the history of science, but I wasn't really interested in, in make, making my magical practice scientific. Right. Um, and at, at one point, one of one of the big chaos magic writers at the time, he made a division. He said there are scientific chaos magicians and rational chaos magicians, and then there are the anarcho-romantic chaos magicians. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, that's good enough for me. I'm an anarcho-romantic <laughs> chaos magician. So is that partly because, you know, magic will work whether or not it's scientific? Uh, I think so. And, you know, later on when I got interested in, in if you like, historical manifestations of, of, of magic, like what was happening in the 19th century, um, you, you can see the same things there. People are trying to understand what they're doing and what they're talking about within the terms of the scientific discourse of the time. 
-hmm. And it all seems a bit kind of like old hat to us nowadays. But, you know, there's not actually that much difference between people talking about quantum effects nowadays as a kind of like rationalization of how magic works as opposed to talking about you know the luminous luminiferous ether or magnetism or vitalism or mesmerism as they were in the 19th century mm. and i kind of my attitude is well do we need that kind of rationalization yeah because for me the, the important thing about magic is it doesn't matter how you rationalize it, it unaccountably it still kind of works sometimes Mm -hmm. If you allow it to, you know, if you allow a space for wonder and astonishment into your life, then you will get wonder and astonishment. Yeah, yeah. So in the in, uh, I sort of hear one of the principles that uh, you know stood out to me as I was looking at chaos magic is is the status of belief and yeah. and and how important belief is. And there's almost kind of a liber a, a liberty or freedom to explore different kinds of belief to sort of see what, you know, manifestations arise as a result of that belief system. So, but, you know, that idea, I feel like, smacks up against some people's sort of, you know, notions of reality because people think, well, they're the believers on one side and then on the other side there's, you know, the rationalists or the people who don't need belief because they have science or whatever. So it, it, is, is the chaos magical view that 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 belief goes all the way down, that no one can escape a, a kind of central belief? Um, there's been various... I think the the belief aspect of, of chaos magic is, is something I got really interested in and yeah. then I kind of like lost interest in it because <laughs> I thought, you know, it's not really about belief, it's about emotional engagement. Yeah, okay. You know, um, what matters for me is what, how, what, how I would say it works is if you can emotionally engage with something mm -hmm. and bring that into your life as a magical act, then that's what matters. Yeah. Um, you know, whether or not you have a a fixed belief in that thing or not is, is almost irrelevant. Right. And you know? um, I mean, chakras are a good example of this, I guess, because I had experiences with chakras and Kundalini in, in the 80s, you know, b before I got involved with Chaos Magic, before I got involved in Tantra. That's one of the things that put the hook in me. And, and I experienced those experiences I had. I came, I later came to think, well, they were structured by what I'd read about chakras. You know, mm -hmm. they weren't just natural experiences. They were things, because I had visions of the, you know, the petals of the Muladhara opening and stuff like that. And I thought, would I have had those experiences in quite in that way if I hadn't absorbed all that material first about how you're supposed to have these experiences? Right. And, you know, you, you, you can train yourself, I think, to have different kind of bodily experiences and for me this is a wonderful thing because it shows the malleability of our relationships with our bodies that it's not fixed that we all experience our body in different ways mm -hmm. Mm. so i'm already starting to see the way in which this you know segues nicely into your work on the chakras but i'm kind of curious just um in in general for you why is there is was there any particular reason that you shifted away from your work in chaos magic for was there anything personal that took place for you in terms of you know your own kind of trajectory um well i got involved i got interested in tantra probably around the same time i was getting interested in chaos magic mm -hmm. um what happened for me i'd, I'd been on a kibbutz in israel mm -hmm. um towards the end of 81 and into 82. I actually left Israel um, when, when the Israelis moved into Lebanon. Oh, wow. 
Um, so just as a war was picking up. Yeah. And I, I ended up living in a little cottage in the Fens in Lincolnshire, pretty much on my own. I'm thinking, you know, I really need a break from all this occult stuff. Yeah. It's kind of doing my head in. <laughs> just going to meditate and chill out for a while. And so I, I kind of created a space where I wasn't actually doing very much other than going for long walks and meditating. And suddenly I started dreaming about Carly. Hmm. And I would have this repeating dream, like night after night, the same dream about Carly. And I was kind of like, what's going on? You know, I'd probably read something about Carly because... You know, like most people who get into the occult, you read loads and loads of books. I'd read loads and loads of books and managed to confuse the hell out of myself. So I just thought, <laughs> I, I need a break from it. But I was having these recurring dreams about Carly. And I was like, how do I interpret this? What's going on? I had no way of interpreting it. I was completely cut off from any kind of like network. Um, and I thought, I, I want to know more about this. And so that kind of pushed me to um, reading some early tantric material there wasn't a great deal around at the time and uh, also at that time all the kind of like you know the what we now call neo-tantra the the sacred sex stuff was really kind of like getting popular mm -hmm. uh, so there was that there was sir john woodruff's material and there was what i would call western takes on tantra which yeah. is kind of like oh tantra is really like kabbalah so actually let's talk about the kabbalah and put a light dusting of exactly something yeah. vaguely hindu into the mix you know? <laughs> and i didn't find that very satisfying yeah um i didn't find the um the sacred sex material very satisfying because well okay i was interested in sex but i actually found a lot of those works really homophobic mm. and i was just exploring my sexuality at the time yeah and they were saying things like oh you know if you're a gay man you shouldn't have sex you should do yoga instead and i was kind of <laughs> thinking <laughs> <laughs> expletive deletive to that uh, but what I wanted was ritual what I wanted was magic and yeah. I, I felt sure that in amidst all this kind of like stuff about Tantra there must be a magical system it's a religious system after all you know where's the ritual mm -hmm. and it took me quite a long time to actually fight through all that material and, and actually find the if you like you know the the proper magic and the proper ritual in yeah. Tantra and it wasn't until about five years later when I moved to Leeds, which was kind of Chaos Magic Central at the time, uh, when I met somebody who was involved in a, in a tantric group. He gave me an initiation after, you know, checking me out for about, a, we talked to each other for about a year just to make sure we were kind of like simpatico with each other. And then he gave me an initiation and became my teacher for a while. Mm. Mm. So was this um, the 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 tantric initiation? Was it sort of was it kind of a westernized form of tantra? Or was it still pretty? Was it what we might? Because I, I feel like we've only recently started to see right a burgeoning of knowledge about mm. kind of Hindu tantra, um, because there's a number of scholars now that are that are fascinated and quite vocal about yeah. the work, as you know, of course. Um, so you know, at that time, was there was there here in the UK like someone that was sort of aligned with that tradition, or was it more of a Westernized version? Um, I would say it was, if anything, it was hybridized because. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, we are Western, obviously. We can't shut that out. Yeah. Um, but the this guy became my teacher. He was hooked in with this group. Um, and the, the people who kind of started the group, well, there was, there was two guys. There was a guy called Mike McGee, who runs a very uh, popular site called ShivaShakti.com. Mm -hmm. And he'd been translating material 
of a wide range of a wide range of tantric material since the the early 80s i think okay um and a lot of the material a lot of the teaching material in the group was is kind of like sri vidya based right so i would call it kind of sri vidya light mm -hmm. but there was also this other guy who was living in india uh who was a white sadhu uh, he'd, he'd gone to India, I think, in the probably mid to late 50s, um, got himself various initiations, uh, and he was kind of like involved in, in this kind of weird Western, Eastern crossover mix. So it, it was a very eclectic group. Mm. But and what happened was I, I got involved with that uh, particular bunch of people, but at the same time I was involved in chaos magic and I was doing other things as well. Um, and what gradually happened as, as I kind of like went throughout the 90s was that I, I, my, my interest in chaos magic and, if you like, streams of direct uh, Western occultism began to fall away. And I just thought, no, this is what I want to co concentrate on. Yeah. It's, it was almost kind of like a, a going back to that very strong devotion um, I felt to goddesses from when I was involved in witchcraft that really chaos magic doesn't have. Mm. I mean, chaos magic isn't, uh, you know, we talk about spiritual paths nowadays. Chaos, I think a lot of chaos magic mag people would be very offended if you said, oh, it's a spiritual path, because they saw it as a non-spiritual path. Oh, interesting. Um, in some ways, chaos magic became very instrumentalist. It was all about, oh, you do a ritual to get something. Mm -hmm. And I was becoming less um, enthusiastic about that kind of approach. I thought, well, no, I don't want to just be using my magic as a form of shopping. Yeah, you know, I want to be surprised by the universe. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to experience wonder with the universe, and that's, I think, a very different approach to what I then saw chaos magic doing, mm -hmm. as, or at least the direction a lot of it was going in. So I kind of backtracked, and I thought, you know, I feel a very strong um, emotional resonance with tantra, yeah. so that's where I'm going to take it from. Yeah. That's, you know, that's what speaks to me. Yeah, you know, the the, the, be the beautiful poetry, the beautiful imagery. Um, that is something I'm much more emotionally connected to, to, you know, doing ritual after ritual to, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Get yourself a new car or something. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because, um, because as we know, right, Tantra or, you know, as we are learning more about Hindu Tantra, we're seeing quite a sophisticated kind of, you know, collection and sequence of practices that are, and rituals that are really quite you know, even ornate might be even a word for it. They're like beautiful and very complicated. And, and, and then on the other side, chaos magic seems to be just more, it's, it's more kind of whatever you decide works for you. Whereas there does seem to be this kind of almost more formulaic step-by-step -step process. Was that part of the appeal? Was that in Tantra, there's more of a system of ritual? Um, Something that became very popular in Chaos Magic was this idea that you could create your own system. Yeah. Um, I kind of started to think, well, you know, if, if, you're, if you're real interested in something, well, why not just try and go into an existing, if you like, ritual technology, a ritual um, philosophy? And Chaos Magic tended to treat all kinds of, all different um, ritual systems as though they were aspects of each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I, having experienced some of the richness uh, of doing Tantra Puja that I'd been taught, I just thought, no, this isn't going to work for me. You know, 
Um, so it was, and there were a lot of other personal factors that I don't really want to go into, but yeah, um, yeah, I, I kind of shifted my focus mm. I, instead of kind of trying to do ten different things at once. I just thought, no, you know. Um, I think what I really find interesting about tantra is it's as much as it's about working your way around particular ritual injunctions and following particular practices. For me, it's very much a journey of discovery mm -hmm. because I was, I'll suddenly think, well, hang on, how does imagination work in India? You know, we have a, we have a Western theory of imagination, which we don't really think about because we, we brought up with it. Yeah. What do India, what do Indian philosophers say about the idea of the imagination and how does that then influence their approach to ritual? So I found myself shooting off at a tangent and, and reading some Indian theories of imagination. Mm. I've spent the last year or so um, getting into Indian theories of, of poetry and mm. poetics because so much of you know um, so much of, of tantric imagery is poetic. Yeah, and I think to understand it better, it, it helps me to get a grip on their theories of poetry. Yeah, and how that you know how those like if you like non-directly tantric things feed in into their understanding of the world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and what stands out to me about about what you just said was is that you know in the West it seems, at least kind of um, uh, in a kind of I don't know colloquial way we think about imagination as being sort of something that that is beside or on the other side of reality. You know, yeah. on the one side there's 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 realistic things, and then there's like what we imagine, yeah. and and. Uh, and and so when you're when you were studying imagination within the kind of the tantric context, what do you find? How do you find the imagination sort of uh, positioned as different from that? Um, I, th I think one of the key things is that you know what you imagine becomes real. Yeah, and it's almost like it's more real than the ordinary reality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a guy called David Shulman on a book, and it's literally called, I think, something like, you know, more real than real. Mm. And he goes through various Indian theories of, of the imagination and connects them to yoga and connects them to tantra. It's a wonderful book. Mm. What's the book called again? Um, I think it's something like more real than real. I'll, I'll look it up yeah. later. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, but it's because I was, I was, it's things like that that hit me. Is, is uh, a, a while ago I was thinking, well, you know. In the tantric literature, you have all these descriptions of beautiful women, you know, the narrow waists, heavy breasts, all the rest of it. It's very, very idealised. Mm -hmm. uh, what we know from reading ethnographers reports is that female tantrics don't look like that. You know, they tend to be a bit leaner and hard-bitten, you know, <laughs> missing some teeth. <laughs> you know? And you've got this very idealised presentation of women. So what I started to think was, well, again, that must be a cultural thing. So let's look at Indian cultural ideas of beauty and how's that, how they shift over different times and mm. how they're represented in, in iconography and, you know, religious writing. And again, that helps me give me a handle on the, on the, the textual material I'm trying to process. Yeah. Um, and I think this is one of the things that does interest me is that, for me, it's not just about doing particular practices, but it's trying to think myself into the, if you like, the ideas behind those practices. Now, I think that is something I find really exciting. I really enjoy that. It's mm -hmm. kind of like the intellectual um, side of the practice for me. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I find myself shooting off and, and getting into all kinds of side tangents mm -hmm. just to try and understand 
give myself a, a, a deeper appreciation of the text, if yeah. you like. Yeah. So then what got you interested in the chakra work that you're doing now? Well, this is a bit embarrassing, but I was, I was looking on one of my old computers the other day, and I actually found a sketch, um, if you like, a, a lecture plan for this lecture series that I'd written back in the 90s. Oh, wow. So, you know, that just shows how kind of like... It's been there a while. Lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Took it a couple um, decades. <laughs> I, I think what I wanted to do was, because I... You know, one of the things that interests me is is how knowledge is transferred from one culture to another yeah. and how it's affected in that process. And, uh, you know, I, I started having arguments with people, I guess, about chakras, and they would say, oh, no, this, you know, I've got seven chakras in my body, I've experienced them, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and I was kind of like, well, come, no, come on, these are cultural constructs. Yeah. You know, um, there are more than seven chakras in, in some tantric systems, and yeah. some there are less. And yeah. people will get really upset because we treat the fact, we tend to treat the chakras as absolute fact. Yeah. And I, I, I became really interested in thinking, well, you know, where did this idea that they are absolute fact come from? Yeah. It's certainly not there in the original tantric material. We have different chakra systems. Uh, you know, there's a very late um, tantric lineage that doesn't have chakras at all. I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but yet we treat them as fact. It's almost kind of like they're as factual as you having a spleen. Yeah. You know, and people get really upset, in, in my experience, if you tell them that actually these, you know, your experience is actually shaped by a particular set of historical processes. Mm -hmm. um, I think also our experiences of, of energies is shaped by historical processes, but that's not really Absolutely. something I've had much chance to go into. Yeah. Maybe when I write this material up into something longer, uh, I'll probably do that. And I feel, I mean, I hear that and I, th I find that liberating because it means that there's a flexibility to the way in which energy can be experienced, which means that, you know, the way that it's experienced now could be different, according, you know, if we cultivate the right conditions, you yeah. know, and, and me, and, and energetically could sort of experience a, a, a um, a kind of energetic relationship with our environment, which of course is what you know the tantric tradition seems to be promising. But I like what you're saying about the chakras because um, you know not only do people see them as as real and sort of you know f concretely in your body, but that that perspective also opens up it opens the chakras up to criticism from kind of the materialist camp who say, well, the chakras are just, you know, chakras are just hocus pocus, you know, quackery. Yeah. And, 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 and I recently had someone as we were launching this chakras course, which I know you, you're, you're familiar with Harish is doing this chakra course and, and someone kept writing on the, on Facebook wall, you know, chakras aren't real. It's a bunch of BS. And, you know, and, uh, from what your work has been showing and also the work of Chris Tompkins and, and other people who are sort of privy to this understanding is that the chakras are a tool, right? They're, they're something that are, so to say they don't exist is like saying, you know, a hammer doesn't exist because a hammer was just invented for the use of a certain a particular task. And is that correct? Is that the way that you see it as well, that the, the chakras are, are tools that are, are meant to cultivate certain kinds of experience? Yeah. I mean, you know, this, this is, I think, pretty much what I said in the lecture. Yeah. They're, they're tools, if you like, for self-transformation that mm -hmm. allow us to structure our bodily experiences towards particular trajectories. And something that interests me a great deal is, if you like, the baggage that accrues around that. Because um, something I was going to bring up in the lecture, but I had to cut it for time, was um, 
you know, I was, I was talking about this downward Kundalini yeah. stuff that Charles Ledbetter comes out with and how any kind of downward Kundalini movement is really bad for you and it makes men satyrs of depravity. <laughs> um, you know, I, I found something like that in, in one of these books on sacred sex that was written in the 70s and it was basically saying, you know, if your Kundalini goes downwards, it means you're gay and that's bad. And it actually says in this book, you know, if, if you're gay or bisexual, but, you know, you shouldn't have sex with another man, you should meditate instead and mm -hmm. try and get your Kundalini going back up in the right direction. And, you know, this is not an idea that I think would get much currency nowadays, but it was very popular then. And, and it interested me how, what kind of moral and ethical discourses accrue around the chakras. You know, we, um, I'm just now doing some research for my final lecture which will be out about Jung's uh, contribution to the chakra system which of course is the psychology and what interests me there is, is how these psychological overlays have become so much part of our experience that, that you know they literally do structure our world from them mm -hmm. you, know, you buy a book on the chakras and it, it's, it's full of psychology Yeah, and it's, there's usually some kind of um, developmental or evolutionary idea implicit within that so that as you go up the chakras you become more spiritual um you know and you're supposed to balance your chakras and all that kind of stuff and it's for me it's um i guess you could say it's 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 feeding into a kind of like if you like a wider discourse about the nature of the body and what constitutes a healthy body what constitutes a spiritual body and i think you know These are important questions for us, and, and our modern understandings of the chakras gives us a framework for dealing with that. But again, those those frameworks have changed over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we, um, you know, we're talking about the downward kundalini, and that sort of reminds me of, you know, uh, this work that you've um, that you're um, knowledgeable about as well. With Christopher Tompkins, he likes to highlight that there's a downward and an upward kundalini and that there was yeah. never not any. So in your kind of study of, um, because, for, so I don't know, just to sort of situate this conversation to, for those that are that are listening as well, I sort of see this as um, this conversation with you when we talk about the chakras as sort of filling in that kind of Western historical, um, uh, how how we lost some of the things that, that Christopher Tompkins, for example, is highlighting as, as, as what has always been there. And so do you think that the loss of that kind of downward kundalini um, or or the the um, yeah the loss of that is sort of an understanding of the way that kundalini moves is is a part of this kind of um, almost puritanical or sex negative sort of westernized approach um, I think it is of course nowadays that that has been reframed and I think we're, we're moving into a more sex positive yeah um, relationship with the chakras but again it's it's the result of historical processes mm -hmm. um you know we don't tend to think of it in those terms but nevertheless i think if you look at the early material and look at you know people like ledbetter who i think was actually more influential than woodroff in in promoting our more, our current understanding of the chakras and he he's clearly saying that anything moving down the body is back into materiality it's back into worldliness it's back into the passions yeah you know, that makes men a satyr of depravity yeah that, that kind of really um 
that's really sex negative, and I think that's probably something that we've moved away from now. But I think it's important to go back and see those ideas with that. Yeah. Because, you know, he's very much articulating um, a view of the body and a view of sexuality, which was very current at the time. You mm. know, and it was a huge question. Yeah. And what, what interests me about the chakras is not only just saying, oh, well, you know, people's understanding of the chakras has shifted from when we first had our first English language articles about them in the 1880s to nowadays, but actually looking at the wider social and cultural shifts that have happened, of which they're a part of. Yeah. Hmm. So what? just to kind of um, point out something that I thought was really funny, you know, in your... In, in the lecture, you you show how Ledbetter, and I got, kind of want to go back in a second to talk about who this guy was, and, and also um, Woodroffe, who, who many people know as Arthur Avalon, the author yeah. of The Serpent Power. Um, but I thought it was funny how in Ledbetter's image depiction of the chakras, you've got the chakras, you know, chakras are generally seen in this kind of like central Shishumna Nadi, central channel kind of alignment. They're always yeah. centered down the, the body. And, uh, and um, instead of the Svaristana chakra, instead of, instead, of, instead of the kind of sacral or sexual chakra, you have the spleen chakra, which is off to the side. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? <laughs> it's like sexuality has been displaced yeah. from the center. Completely, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was so fascinating because you never, I mean, you do see the, you do see chakras in other parts of the body that aren't in the central channel, you know, especially when you're looking at other systems. But I thought it was so interesting that in in an otherwise centralized chakra system, mm. the section, what would, what, what was originally the sexual chakra has been displaced to be the spleen chakra, yeah. which is, of which is associated with what, according to Ledbetter? Um, I think there's some spleenic. <laughs> You know, nervous complex, or yeah. possibly even endocrine. Yeah. Uh, but I've, I'm still doing research on on the way endocrine yeah. um, endocrine theory was was brought into the chakras. Yes. Um, what really fascinates me about is all this medical stuff. Because when I started looking at the chakras as a subject of historical change, rather than just they're there, you know, um, I thought all the all the kind of like the correlations that were made between chakras and nerve plexuses or chakras and endocrine systems will be Western ones. Yeah. Because after all, you know, that's Western tech. You know, to my, I was actually surprised to find the first, almost universally, all the people writing about chakras corresponding to nerve plexuses and parts of the body and, you know, Kundalini being the right vagus nerve, it's all Indians doing it. Mm. I thought, well, that's absolutely fascinating. Mm. And, you know, that's what Ledbetter and people later on pick up on. But the first people to do that are all Indian authors. Oh, interesting. So, and that led to, why is that happening? You know? Yeah. And why is that happening? I think, it, well, I think it's very complex, but I think one reason for it is that um, you look at a, a vast amount of Orientalist writing about India, um, you know, prior to that point, and it, it, it's all... Indians don't have a science. Yeah, you know, uh, there's one guy, James Mill, wrote a very influential book called, I think, A History of British India. You know, that the title itself kind of tells you where he's coming from. He says the Indians don't have any science. Well, yeah, they've got a bit of mathematics and astronomy, but they've wasted it on astrology and astrology. You know, any nation that believes in astrology is, is a barbarous nation. Right. So. You know, India's had a, probably about 100 years of the British telling them they're all ignorant savages. Mm -hmm. So when this chakra material starts to get looked at by, you know, Indian intellectuals and Indians who 
probably gone through a westernized education in colonial India, you know, it's quite. I think it's quite natural that they want that they want to say actually, you know, we have science too, guys, and ours is better than yours. <laughs> and uh, and I, I I need to go and do some more research into um, how ideas about Indian traditional Indian medicine were being shaped in that period. And there has been a lot of research on that. I just need need to go and do some research on it. But I know that some of the earliest people to link the chakras to endocrine theory were again. Indian Ayurvedic doctors hmm. Hmm. who who want to, it's almost kind of like taking you know what's seen as traditional Indian wisdom, which has also been completely disparaged by you know um, missionaries and Western scholars and Western Orientalists, and and actually realigning it, you no, know, not just taking on Western ideas, but actually reshaping those very ideas to fit with what they see as their traditional knowledge. Yeah. And it's tricky because some Indians at the time were very anti-Tantra. Uh, but I think what Woodruff did was he, he aligned himself with um, some of the Indian intellectuals who were reshaping Vedanta uh, into something that would, you know, A, unify, unify the disparate strands of Hindu religion into one whole and make it a counter to Christianity and unify Indians so that they could get the British off their backs. Mm -hmm. Are we talking about Vivekananda here? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, Woodruff was, was president of the local Vivekananda Society. Ah. So when I'm going back and reading um, Vivekananda's addresses to the World Parliament of Religions and then reading some of Woodruff's polemical writings, um, I can say, yeah, there's, he's definitely coming, you know, in the same vein as Vivekananda. I didn't mention Vivekananda in the lecture because... Um, I don't I actually like throwing too many people into yeah. the mix. That I thought, okay, I know who Vivekananda is, but maybe not everybody else at the lecture will do. So I just kind of like omitted that. But when I write the book up, I'll probably go into that in a bit more detail. Yeah. So one of the things that you mention, um, and what I think is sort of less, is not highlighted as much in our kind of understanding of or hasn't been um, highlighted as much in our understanding of the history of the chakras is the role of the theosophists in yeah. kind of the popularization and and of and appropriation in a certain kind of way of the chakras. So w what um, what did the theosophists do, and how do you see them as having kind of contorted um, uh, the chakras in a way? Um, I think one of the things we tend to forget about the theosophical society was just how huge it was. Right. You know. Um, yeah, I didn't know that before your lecture. I didn't realize how big it was. They, they were huge, and they had a huge um, publishing operation. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they they had they had printing presses in in India. They had publishing outfits over here, and they were hugely important. I think in disseminating, um, if you like, their interpretation of a lot of Indian material. Yeah, I mean, they were the, you know they they were producing um, translations of the Yoga Sutras. Mm. Um, various translations of other works and probably some of the first people to do so because yeah so, very much yeah. so I mean, a lot of a lot of you know material that people say oh that's never been translated before you actually look back and you find that some theosophist was on the job and i was i was very interested in in seeing that the first english language articles we get about the chakras are in 1880 it's uh, again, it's an Indian intellectual. He's a member of the Theosophical Society, and he does a translation of the the Shat Chakra Nirupada, yeah. you know, Woodruff's famous text, 
in 1880. Wow. And okay, it's in a theosophical magazine and not in mass circulation, but you can still see those ideas starting to, to percolate. And I think what happened with theosophy is that it's a very interesting, um, if you like, process because they got hold of these ideas. They were very, I think, interested in this idea of chakras and kundalini um, because it kind of like allowed them to make a, a connection, if you like, between the gross material body and the astral body. And at, at first they were very kind of like interested in Tantra. And then what happens is is the people leading the Theosophical Society mostly um, kind of like get caught up in these anti-Tantric sentiments. Mm. And, and it's almost kind of like... And at the same time, they, as they bring chakras in, um, it becomes theirs. Yeah. So you, there's a kind of shift between them just saying, oh, these are really bizarre ideas from this tantric text, to actually say, actually, we knew about this stuff all along, and it's mm-hmm. ours, it's part of the wisdom tradition. It's part of the, you know, it's part of the theosophical, um, this, this perennial, perennial tradition, which is, you know, the magical tradition that's, you know, gone down through the cycles of the ages and been transmitted by adepts through secret means. And that what happens is almost the tantric and the hatha yoga texts that they're looking at almost get sidelined because yeah. they don't like tantra and they don't like hatha yoga. That you know, they're great, not body positive. They're not body positive at all. There's a there's a great line in one of Blavatsky's works where she says, "Oh, I, I know three people who be, who tried out hatha yoga. One died. One became a consumptive, and the other one became a tantric, but fortunately died before he, you know, <laughs> before his karma went so rat, rotten or something like that. You know? They're they're completely non body positive in that mm. sense. Yeah. But what happens is they they take chakras into their ideology and almost kind of like start dissing the, the, the or, or, or claiming that the, the tantric source or the hatha yoga source is just one thing and not actually quite right mm. and this is something that's very interesting about Blavatsky is that she kind of like she turned east um, but on her own terms only but on her own terms and, and there's some quite substantial arguments that she has with various Indian um, occultists and, and telling them they're wrong yeah you know I know better because I have a I have a, I have a, a proper lineage transmission effectively. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. you'd find people nowadays talking about proper lineage transmissions and how important they are. And of course Blavatsky made that claim and because she could make that claim and make it stick, anybody who she saw as having an incomplete transmission got edged out. So her turn east was effectively to say, Well, yeah, you know, the theosophical wisdom does come from the east, but in the same way that Orientalists were saying, oh, well, you know, India used to be great, but it's degenerated. She was actually saying pretty much the same thing. They've lost connection to their original wisdom, and it's up to me now to, to recover it. Oh, dear. Almost the same as people like Max Muller, you know, who translated the sacred books of the East to, to reteach the Indians what mm-hmm. their religion was. Mm. You know, it's that same Orientalist impulse. Yeah. You know, the white man knows better. And, I, you know, I think that's still something that we have to be very cognizant of when we approach um, Indian religious material like the Tantras. Mm. You know? So there was still a colonialist, ad- There's there was definitely a colonialist attitude in Blavatsky and the Theosophist sort of, like, I, approach. I think so completely, and I, I think that's that's there again in Ledbetter, because Ledbetter makes the chakras universal, and then at the end of his book he has a chapter on what the Tantrics say. And it's basically, oh, well, apart from all this religious stuff yeah. that he's not really interested, they agree with us. 
Yeah. You know, and he's basically saying everybody has this universal um, experience of chakras. And I think it's with Ledbetter's book in, in 1927 that the chakras do become universal, but in that very Western sense, mm -hmm. you know, in the way that the Western white male appearance, you know, white male experience becomes the default state for everyone else. Yeah. Apart from, you know, racial differences, which he does go into a little bit. Yeah. So I want to talk about, um, since we are sort of talking a little bit about Ledbetter and we've mentioned Woodruff, can we just go through maybe a kind of abridged version of the talk that I attended last week yeah. um, uh, so that we can kind of situate these people? Because I think we're talking a little bit around them. So maybe we can just, who was Ledbetter? I mean, we I, I think everybody probably understands that he was a theosophist. Um, and you, in your talk, talked about him alongside Woodruff, who you saw as, you know, you sort of position these two as offering very different um, understandings of the chakras. So, what 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 were the two sort of understandings that they represent, and then what are the stakes in that difference for you? Well, Sir John Woodroffe, you know, a pillar of the British colonial establishment, a yeah. High Court judge, you know, a very senior figure. Um, for me, he emerges as someone quite radical. I mean, really radical because you know he he supported Indian the Indian push for Home Rule. Yeah. Um, he was, I, he, I mean, his project was to, whereas at, at that point, uh, certainly if you lot of, read a lot of the um, Oriental scholarship of the time and, and some of the Indian critiques of Tantra, uh, you know, Tantra was very much seen as, as something marginal. He wanted to bring Tantra back into the centre of Indian life and say it was absolutely a part of mainstream, um, mainstream religious tradition mm -hmm. now. I, I think he was doing that because of his, you know, kind of like Vivekananda yeah. leanings and his and his affiliation with with Vedanta as it was being reshaped at the time. Um, but you know, nowadays Woodruff is known as the father of tantric studies, and yes, people criticise him for his translations and for his various mistakes and so forth, and that's great. But at the same time, without Woodruff, I don't think we would have a tantric studies. Right, scholarly tradition to criti with which to criticise him, yeah. you know, because he he made tantra, um, he opened a lot of people's eyes to the idea that there was something in tantra, whereas most people just saw it as bacchanalian orgies and and black magic spells, you know. Yeah, and he tried to say no, there is something worth it, worth looking at in these traditions. Um, and as much as I, you know, I I'd said that in the lecture, I found found Woodrow very difficult to read because. I've read him in my early 20s. I didn't have the background. I probably still don't have all the background I would like to have to read him properly. Uh, and a great deal of it went off my head. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, my feeling with Woodruff's book, The Serpent Power, which came out in 1918, is that even at that time, chakras were a kind of hot topic and there'd been a fair number of books written about them uh, preceding his work all of which tended to say, oh, well, you know, chakras are directly related to, to nerve plexuses and so forth. And in fact, there was there was a couple of books written that just argued that, that chakras were just, you know, like anatomical. Yeah. You know, they had no spiritual function, really. Um, and I think Woodruff's work is, is an attempt to correct what he saw as the mistakes that other people were blotting about, yeah. about the chakras. And also to try and situate it within his understanding of the tantric tradition. Now, how successfully he did that, I think you'd have to be a, you know, a specialist 
to really assess that. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really want to push into that direction because, again, I was very aware. I was speaking to people who maybe, you know, got some idea of what the chakras are, but probably don't want to see me doing like, you know, textual <laughs> comparisons between what, how Woodruff interprets the passage and how someone else interprets the passage. Um, but I think, you know, Woodruff's work was major. I mean, he's, it's almost kind of like, you see this in a lot of um, Western Indian books that are written about the chakras, that they, they cite Woodruff as an authority, but don't actually look at the texts mm. other than the ones that Woodruff cites. He became an authority. Um, and, you see, and he was very, very popular in India. And he's, he was, he's, there's almost like there's this tension in him that he wants the chakras to be taken seriously by scientists, but he doesn't want scientists to just reduce them to the physiological. Right. So I think he's, I think he's a very, very complex figure. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Charles Webster Ledbetter, um, his book came out in 1927. And the interesting thing, thing about Woodruff, I, I guess, before I go into Ledbetter, is that Woodruff's wife was a theosophist, and a lot of his friends were theosophists. Yeah. And again, this was at a time when um, theosophists like Annie Besant, were, were, she got elected to the head of the Indian National Congress. Mm. And the, the colonial authorities were kind of like looking at theosophists and thinking, these people are dangerous, you know, we need to keep an eye on them. I think Annie Besson got interned by the British at one point. So again, having, having obvious links with the Theosophical Society wasn't altogether a good thing for Woodruff's career. Now, Ledbetter is someone different. Um, Ledbetter is tricky talking about his biography because he seems to have made quite a lot of his life up. You know, he seems to <laughs> been one of these very early mythologists which uh, mythologists yeah you know um and if it wasn't for this this guy gregory tilly who wrote a biography in 1982 i guess a lot of his mythology of his life would have stayed in circulation um he was someone who claimed a psychic ability and had an absolute belief in that ability and you know this is his big claim in his book he's not just writing about the chakras as perhaps Woodruff was writing, he, you know, Woodruff is translating traditional British, sorry, traditional Indian yeah. material. He's read books, you know. Ledbetter's big claim is, I've seen the chakras, you know, and he produces these really wonderful drawings of what the chakras actually look like based on the report of somebody who can actually see them. And I think this is huge mm -hmm. because nowadays, you know, we don't think anything of the idea that you can experience your chakras psychically because. You know, anybody can have a psychic experience. Yeah. You know, you might need to read a book or go on a course or something, but, you know, that kind of psychic experience is open to everyone. In Ledbetter's time, it was something that only a very few number of people were thought to be able to do, principally Ledbetter towards his followers. And he, he tended to write as though, yeah, other people will one day see this too, or one day science will catch up with me. But he had this absolute certainty that his psychic vision was you know factual mm. and i think that makes him a fascinating character to chart the progress of the chakras because it's at that point that they do become um force centers in the in the human body in both the material body and the astral body and the etheric body and all these other vehicles that were part of the theosophical system um and he moves them you know there's, there's no deities at all and they become universal in that sense. So I think he's this fascinating character, but he's, he's also a very controversial character. I mean, um, it was Ledbetter who discovered Krishnamurti. Mm -hmm. 
and you know made him into this world teacher and of course Krishnamurti famously turned around and said I'm not a world teacher yeah and lo there was great you know rejoicing and a gnashing of teeth in all the people <laughs> who believed in him um, but he was also a very controversial figure because um, he was accused of sexual immorality with young boys mm -hmm. and if you go on my blog http enfolding.org you'll you'll find a very large treatment of those sexual scandals because I did a, a kind of a four piece, four piece four part essay looking at the various scandals Interesting. that have affected Ledbetter throughout his career hmm. so within the Theosophical Society he was this hugely controversial figure even now people are kind of like arguing about how much an effect he had on the society itself because lots of people were really unhappy with him being in the Theosophical Society and left yeah. So he's a hugely controversial figure, and it's kind of ironic that I think that he's more he's reads to me as being much more much less radical a figure than Avalon. You know, Ledbetter comes across to me as being very socially conservative. We we there was one point where um, the Indian newspaper, the Hindu, were calling for him to be deported from India because mm. they saw him as a sex pervert. Yeah. And he was saying, well, I believe in king and country. You know, there's no more loyal supporter of empire than I am. <laughs> and I think that gives you a kind of insight into his, into his, how he saw India, you know. Yeah, exactly. Huh. So he, he's someone who's claims, he claims to have knowledge, knowledge of Indian, um, traditional Indian material on chakras, but I think he's got it all from material that's been translated he, he wouldn't have read Sanskrit. He would have he would have been reading things like the Shiva Samhita, which was I think first translated in eighteen ninety seven, mm -hmm. and some of the other famous yoga texts were translated then. So he's kind of like looked at all that material, but decided that his psychic ability, um, and he was he was also a great um, simplifier. So I think one of the advantages, you know, if you look at Woodruff's book, The Serpent Power, six hundred odd pages. You don't actually start getting discussions of chakra until about 200 pages in. That's <laughs> better's book's much shorter. Yeah. And it's also got these wonderful anatomical illustrations. And kind of c trying to come back to it and read it, I guess, dispassionately, I thought, well, actually, I can see people finding this a much easier work to assimilate because it all it is very easy. It doesn't go into any abstract Vedantic theory. It doesn't try and use lots of Sanskrit words. You know, it's much more open to somebody who's coming from a general um, background of that time. And, you know, the book's been in print ever since, mm -hmm. as has Woodruff's, of course. But I think Ledbetter has, has had much more of an effect in shaping contemporary ideas about chakras. Um, it's, it might just be a, a thing on just as simple as Ledbetter's more readable, mm -hmm. you know. I, I, st I still I still struggle with Woodruff because he he is like you know, bit of explanation, lots of Sanskrit terms. Um. But we seem like we can we can make a connection with the with the original tantric tradition a little more through Woodruff, even though it is a, a very it's m much less accessible text. Um, whereas in Ledbetter, it's that sort of no. That, the, in Ledbetter, the whole that anything tantric is gone basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, I was, you know, I was, I was talking at the lecture about the Matrika deities, and, I, and I, when I was writing the, doing the research, I thought, you know, this is something that Chris Tompkins is doing. It's absolutely fascinating. But 
And I kind of thought, well, is Woodruff aware of that? Does he know about these these deities on the petals? And yeah, he is. He actually talks about them, but he he kind of like config he interprets them as moral qualities. Right. He calls them vrittis, and that's we think vrittis think modifications of the mind. It's yeah. a yoga term. He hasn't quite got the idea of what these deities that are installed on the petals are for. And something I came across which I thought was really fascinating, but I didn't have time to go into it in the lecture was. You know, one of the books that Woodruff wrote before The Serpent Power is Principles of Tantra, which was, is actually written by uh, a guy called Shiva Chandra, who many people at the time thought was Woodruff's tantric guru. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about Principles of Tantra is that at some point, Shiva Chandra starts talking about the chakras, and then he kind of stops. And he says, no, I'm not going to reveal what I know about the chakras. It's secret. Mm. He says, it's secret. If you're not an initiate, there's no amount of talking gonna is gonna make you understand it. And and I think this is quite an interesting point. He says, I don't actually think that it benefits the practitioner community. He doesn't actually say that, but that's the gist of it. I actually don't think it benefits the practitioner community to have this material in the public domain. Mm. And I think that's a very interesting statement because what he's effectively saying is all the the chakra stuff is actually secret. Mm -hmm. And I start to think. Wow, that's quite amazing because, and I've you know I've I've talked to to people who are um, to Indian friends of mine who are initiated into their own tantric lineages, and they say, yeah, we don't like talking about it, you know, we, and we don't actually, you know, don't think anything of the Western material. It's all cultural appropriation. Yeah, as one one woman was saying at the weekend, and she said, you know, it's it's something for it for initiates only, mm -hmm. and I think again that's something really interesting and and. I think to his credit, um, Ledbetter actually does go into this a little bit because he says it's natural for us to want to have these experiences, you know, but his advice, as I said in the lecture, is to wait, mm -hmm. you know, wait for an inner planes master to turn up and tell you you're ready. Um, and as much as, as we can laugh at that, I think he's actually not making a bad point because we do, you know, chase after a lot of spiritual experiences that maybe we're not ready for. Yeah. And we do want, you know, I think we do have a tendency, particularly in in the industrialised part of the world, to want, you know, the knowledge of the non-industrial part of the world, or we want things that were previously known as secrets. Yeah. And I think that brings up a huge dis discussion about whether it's actually appropriate for us to have that yeah. information. Yeah. I, I remember years ago, I was... I was corresponding with some tree vidya guy who was living in Varanasi and he said well you know we're having a good conversation I like you you're a nice guy but when it comes down to it you're not initiated so you know there's only a limited amount of stuff I'm willing to share with you and yeah. I was kind of like really offended by this. <laughs> and then I thought about it and I thought well okay yeah fair enough you know yeah well I, I f f which is why I, I kind of described my approach to tree vidya as tree vidya light yeah because yeah. I know I'm never going to be able to do it properly. And well, I don't really, that's not really an issue for me anymore. What I'm doing, if you like, satisfies me to a certain extent. It, I find it very emotionally, very engaging. Mm -hmm. um, it'll, it won't be the proper thing in, in, in the way that somebody might be doing getting in India, but that's kind of okay for me. Yeah, and I feel like what, you know, I think one of the th ways in which we sort of um, misunderstand the secret practices is that we don't really 
we've lost, I think, in the West kind of uh, uh, an appreciation for the power of initiation or, you know, yeah. what we call diksha, right? And, and, and just how the coherence of a practice only can be activated within the context of a particular ritual with a with an, a teacher, with an yeah. initiatory guru or teacher, and 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 that seems that that is always what my my teacher tends to highlight. I mean, I, he doesn't necessarily say we can't talk about these things; they're secret. But just in the, uh, well, I mean, maybe he does. But I and I just sort of think, in general, in even in in traditional Western education, you know, there are certain things that you don't teach. You know, in kindergarten, yeah, you don't teach them in first grade, mm. and you know, the kindergartners aren't running around like, tell me what you're going to tell the seniors in high school. Cool. No, mm. there's this there's this sense in which you know you understand that there's a sequence, yeah. but in spiritual it seems like in Western spirit in in Western spiritual communities we sort of th- we have this kind of like egalitarianism where we should have access to everything and and it's all sort of a you know it's um it's kind of the salad bar spirituality where I get to take this and I get mm. to take that and and how dare you tell me that I can't have this because you know I am in in charge of my own spiritual life and so. And so I think there is kind of, um, you know, and you even said in your in your talk, someone asked you about the importance of a teacher, and you said, I do think that there that it's important to to have a teacher because there's certain things that become activated. There's certain things that you can only experience within the context of a certain kind of relationship. I think the the relationship part of having a teacher is is really what counts. Yeah, I mean, I. I used to go and see this this when I was heavily more heavily involved in the Western occult scene. I used to have this like old guy. I used to go and see him. Um, I was probably in my late twenties. He was in his late sixties, and uh, he was great for me because. And one thing he used to say is, "I'm not your teacher." He said, "I'm just an older brother." You know, I've been doing this stuff forty years longer than you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not trying to teach you stuff. We're just having a conversation. And he was very down to earth, very kind of like earthy guy. Um, and it was just nice to hang out with him, you know. And I think this is, I've been tremendously fortunate in having a number of teachers, um, some of which I would regard as my tantric teachers. Now, if you want to get into questions of lineage, that's a big issue, but, you know, maybe other people won't recognize them as proper teachers, but then. What's been important for me is just having that relationship with somebody who yeah. is willing to let you babble all kinds of madness at them because you've you've done a ritual and it's blown your head away. Yeah. Who is willing to let you ring them up at three o'clock in the morning crying and say, I'm I'm having a, I'm freaking out and they just go, I'll oh, just you know, breathe deeply, Phil, it'll go away, you know. <laughs> be down to earth when you need them to be down to earth. Um I actually think that's something that's getting progressively harder and harder to do. Mm-hmm. To have a a one-on one-on-one relationship with somebody i think so too you know it's much easier to do it over the net nowadays and yeah i know there are people who are doing very good work on the net through mediated sites like embodied philosophy mm-hmm. thank you um <laughs> but you know finding somebody who's who's willing to to you know give of their own time with you and, and sit down with you and and you know nurse you through your mad moments and, and calm you down and say well you know maybe you should look at this or maybe you shouldn't be doing this because you're actually it's fucking you up you know yeah i think that's something very increasingly rare mm-hmm. and if you can find somebody like that and i used to say to people look 
it's you know the whole thing about the guru for me it's it's a kind of friendship it's a very intense relationship it's, yeah it's almost like a love affair without any sex yeah you know it, yeah. and it can get that close i think yeah yeah i think you're and right we, I, we see you know we can see evidence of this um in some of the descriptions of, of, of tantric initiations where it's not ritual based but it's about the passing of a kind of feeling um some of the near you know 19th and 20th century Indian gurus have left some really eloquent descriptions yeah. of their meetings with their teachers. And I think it's still something we can learn from. You know, yeah. There's a great, re I think, resistance to having a guru or having a teacher because the idea is, oh, it's all on the net. You can just learn it yourself. Or there's, you know, or there's, you know, been a problematic history of certain guru abuses that people are afraid of. Sure. You know. But, you know, likewise, there's, there's a problematic history of university professors. Yeah. Or, or, you know, high school teachers and their students. But yeah. Yet, you know, but yeah, the organization remains. Going. Yeah, exactly. You know, power differentials are important. And we have to take them, take them into account. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I still feel there's something valuable there. Yeah. And in, in just having, you know, being able to sit with someone. And they might not be telling you esoteric secrets, but they're giving you a space to just say whatever comes out. And, and you know, the, uh, I, I used to, I guess I almost used to stalk the guy who became my, my second tantric guru because he used to um, live on in this little kind of like clump of houses on the edge of Leeds and I'd go and like, sit in the trees and wait for him to come home and then I'd, I'd rush to his door and say, oh, I was just passing. No, no, I've been waiting for you to come home for the past two hours. <laughs> and I'd knock on his door and we'd have a cup of tea and a chat. Mm. And, you know, that, that was something in later in life I came to very much value, just being able to sit and talk to somebody. And it might not be, oh, oh I'm telling you this secret practice, because a lot of it wasn't, but it's just really nice having some, having to be able to chat to somebody. Yeah. And I, I eventually I began to think, well, if you can't have that one-to-one -one human relationship with someone, is the rest of it going to is, is the rest of it going to be, be there, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I've met people who said, oh, well, you know, you know, your relationship with your teacher should be purely professional and there shouldn't be any emo emotional content and, you know, it should all be kind of like very controlled. And I thought, well, okay, that maybe that works for you, but I don't think it would work for me. No, there has to be some kind of emotional yeah. kind of investment. Yeah. So, you know, as we're kind of closing up this conversation, what do you, um, what do you want people to walk away with regarding kind of the history of the chakras in the West and, 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 um, yeah, just kind of some some closing thoughts about um, where your work is going and 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 sort of what you see to be the what are what are the stakes for us in really understanding and grasping this history of how how um, the chakras were 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 tra transitioned into the West and evolved here. I guess that it's a history that's still writing itself. Yeah, you know, uh, and it's possible that if you know if if we come. Again, if somebody has that conversation in 50 years' time, we might have a completely different understanding right. of chakras now. Uh, sorry, in the future that we did then. You know, um, it's intensely malleable. Um, it ping pongs back and forth. I mean, it's, you know, I think now the the best, one of the most in useful ways to think about chakras is that they become tra transnational. Yeah, if you like. Yeah, um, it's almost as if the the you know the what's there in the original tantric material almost bears no relation, yeah. apart from the word chakras, right. to how we think of them nowadays. And that is something that's happened over a, quite a long period of time. Um, 
I'm going to be really fascinated to see what happens when Chris Tompkins' work actually gets into the into the wider domain because I yeah. think he's going to um, rock a lot of bolts yeah. and possibly even upset a lot of people or upset a lot of, if you like, received wisdom that, that we've become entrenched with. Um, and I think this is almost true of, of any kind of like thing in the West now that we take as, as, as spiritual but factual. You know, it has a history. It, there are elements of that history that are not always nice in terms of things like colonialism yep. and its effect. But I think, for me, the, the power of doing this kind of cultural historical research is it kind of like frees you up. Mm -hmm. It gives you a certain malleability. You know, just because it says in the book that you experience, you should experience a chakra like this, you're not actually fixed to do that. Yeah. You know, if you want to add chakras or remove chakras, you know, if you want to come up with a queer understanding of chakras, there's a space to do that. Mm. You know, I think the problem for us in the West is we we tend to get very prescriptive and, and locked into particular ways of doing things. Right. And if we study the history of how we've we've come to our current understanding, I think it actually frees us up to get more innovative. You mm. Know? Mm. Maybe decide that maybe they're not that important after all. Yeah. You know, yeah. which is something one of my teachers said. It's chakras. Oh, don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've certainly bothered, and uh, and this has been a really interesting conversation. So if for people that are interested in learning more about you, Phil, how can they get in touch with your work? You um, have, you've been actually publishing these, um, these uh, the lectures that you've been doing. The, the lectures are being published as small chat books. Mm -hmm. uh, are they available online? No, they're only available through Treadwell's Bookshop. Which is a bookshop in London. Which is a bookshop in London. Um, it's wwwtreadwells hyphen london.com okay uh they're available through there um i do hope in the fullness of time to write them into a larger work but i've got another book on the go at the moment so i'll probably have to wait what's that one about uh that's going to be a an anthology of what i consider to be my best writing over the past 30 odd years oh excellent and okay. it's going to have a section on tantra and a section on sexuality and a section on chaos magic section on this and that and the other and anything that i think is worth um bringing back into the public domain, plus some kind of autobiographical context. Excellent. And I'm hoping to get that to my publishers probably for about the end of the year. So uh, and my main blog is um, httpenfolding.org. Httpenfolding.org. Yeah. Okay. And that's mainly what I use to, to write about my, what I find interesting in, in Tantra and Theosophical material. So it's it's some practice and a lot of history and a lot of wackiness. Excellent. Know, what I, that is my current interest blog, and sometimes I get other people to write for me too. Awesome. So then um, if for anybody that is in the London area, you're doing one more lecture on the chakras, and that's going to be, what, what date is that? Uh, that's going to be on June the 14th, and that's going to be looking at the influence of Jung on the chakras. And there will probably be more lectures Excellent. Because Troubles is the main place where I, I do my lecturing, and it's a great place. Yeah, it is a great place. It's a, I definitely highly, highly recommend it to anybody listening. Treadwell's uh, Treadwell Bookstore. It is in the neighborhood. It's near Russell Square. Yeah, um, it's uh, Store Street. So the, the nearest tube station is Good Street. Good Street. Mm -hmm. uh, Bloomsbury, effectively. Effect Bloomsbury, okay. Yeah. Excellent. So check that out. June 14th, 2018 is uh, around the time we're recording this podcast. So if you are listening to it before, then make sure you uh, show up to uh, meet Phil in person. Great. Okay. All thank right. you very thank much. Thank you, Phil.